Greetings. Welcome to Grace Bible Church again. Um, I'm uh, David. Uh, it's my honor and privilege to kind of just go through the, the questions here and look smart. Uh, ask Steve all these questions that other people have been submitting him. Um, just so you know, this isn't our typical practice. Usually uh, we devote ourselves to expository preaching, but it's kind of fun as we've been going through this series. It's been enjoyable for me just to see the fruit of exposition come through and everything that uh, Pastor Steve has been saying. I've just been amazed and blown away. I think one of the things that has really been changing in my thinking is, is thinking about my thinking. Um, Christian mythology has been a phrase that we've been hearing a lot about, and I've really been helped to, to think about what, what have I always just assumed about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I hope you guys have been helpful, um, and it's just a, a real encouragement to you too. Um, people are listening. Um, I know of people outside of this church that have been listening to this series, so it's, it's been encouraging and strengthening and sharpening for the church of God. Great. Um, we're going to start out with a uh, kind of a question on that line. Obviously, there's been a lot of information on um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, why did you uh, decide to do this series or this study in the first place? Uh, doesn't the church have a lot of good information on divorce and remarriage already? The church does have a lot of good information. Uh, I want to kind of just give a, some background here. Uh, first of all, uh, if you didn't hear most of all the series, uh, most or all of the series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, um, probably this is going to feel a little disjointed to you. So if you're wondering, why are they just parachuting this weird topic out in the middle of nowhere? Um, these are questions that were submitted by people who have heard the series. Um, so obviously I can't go back and attempt to prove every point I've made in the last 13 messages. I also want to remind us that this is an emotional issue. Uh, it's, it's super emotional. It's an easy issue to approach Scripture with a, with a preconceived conviction, like a detective who already has a, 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 um, a, a hypothesis, and so he looks for evidence that supports his hypothesis. It's easy to do that. And as I've said numbers of times, I think it's important to examine our own hearts on this issue. This is not a salvation issue. Um, there are lots and lots of people who will go to heaven uh, disagreeing on this all the way there, and that's fine. And during the rapture, we can, hey, Jesus, what was the actual uh, meaning here? And we can do that. Um, but we examine our own hearts, and, and you know, one of the last things that I'm hopeful to, to leave us with is that if you are one who's prone to be upset or angry at others who disagree with you on this, then that's the issue you have to address, um, not, not the issue of divorce and marriage and remarriage and all of that. Um, the remarriage issue, which we just finished off last week, I went back and gave eight considerations from Scripture and scriptural history um, concerning the existence and reality of remarriage. And so just as a reminder to you, if... If after careful study, uh, you can you still hold that the Bible doesn't allow for remarriage and, the, and you are set on that, that's okay. Um, there is no specific declaration in Scripture, however, against remarriage. And so uh, the, the, the caution I, I want to give, I gave last week and I'll give now too, is that there is enough gray that you can hold to that conviction personally. There is not enough evidence to make any sort of prohibition um, at all. And that's what we would, we would stand against. It is a matter of conscience. And as I said last week, if in your careful study of Scripture, you don't believe that there is ever a case for divorce or ever a case for remarriage, then you should never be divorced and you should never remarry. Um, that is a matter of your conscience. It would violate your conscience. Um, 
So some of these questions, like the one that David is, is opening up with here, they've been addressed in the course of the preaching series, but I, I presented a lot of material. I was looking back, I counted my sermon notes about 300 pages worth. So there's, a, there's enough for us to go back and review. But uh, to David's question on why I wanted to do this in the first place, I mentioned this morning, I originally was going to do the, uh, the, the birth songs in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and 2. That's a really happy topic. And uh, I was convinced in my own heart to switch over to a little bit more serious topic. Um, as far as the question, does the church have a lot of good information? Yes, we have a lot of good information on lots and lots of things from Scripture, but it's the duty of the preacher to repeat that over and over and over again. Um, the Apostle Peter talked about repeating things until they were ingrained in our minds. Um, the attitude that something has already been covered so it shouldn't be talked about really leads to the next generation not knowing anything. And now you get to preaching that really doesn't give you any, any uh, content at all. There's a lot of conflicting information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and, and we can be fine with that. Um, but some of that information, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this series, some of that information actually leads to churches and church leaders allowing for abusive situations to happen and allowing for uh, what we might call super hyper-legalism that is absolutely devoid of grace uh, to start permeating our thinking. I think one of the important things for me, and this was part of my discovery process in doing this, this project, was marriage, divorce, and remarriage is not just about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It is about soteriology. It is about our view of salvation and what saving grace actually looks like. And as David mentioned, we've talked a lot about Christian mythology, and we've defined that as the tendency to believe something is true just because it's been repeated so often, and now it's been repeated so many times that uh, we take it as truth. And so that was one of my goals was to, was to uh, demythologize some of these topics. Uh, I've mentioned a few examples. I have more favorite examples of Christian mythology. I've been digging these up. Uh, one example would be, since there's no mention of musical instruments in the New Testament church, then the church should not use musical instruments, especially not the drums. Of course, that's somewhere in... Uh, well, what is that... What is that Tell us, well, that betrays an overly separate view of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that somehow that page that's between Malachi and Matthew ought to actually be a, a, a book. The New Testament doesn't give loads of information on many aspects of worship because worship is worship and we have an entire Old Testament filled with examples of worship. And the biggest difference that the New Testament gives is that we no longer bring animals to sacrifice because Christ is our once for all sacrifice. So the New Testament doesn't need to go back and talk about musical instruments because the Old Testament is filled with uh, a theology of musical instruments. So that's an example of, uh, of Christian mythology. Uh, we can talk about the, the myth of avoid the appearance of evil. And that's one that we've grown up hearing. That's taken to mean that anything that could remotely look bad to anyone else should categorically be avoided. And that sort of sounds good on the surface. And there is a measure of wisdom to this but it also creates a man-pleasing attitude of, of paranoia and even legalism. Uh, you know, when, when Sylvia makes a dish, like a beef stew that requires red wine in it, do I need to make sure and hide it among the more holy items in my cart to avoid the appearance of evil? Oh, pastor's hitting the bottle there. <laughs> well, the problem with that is, and it sounds good, but it's based on an old 
English translation of 1 Thessalonians 5.22, which reads in the ESV's excellent translation, abstain from every form of evil. Not abstain from the appearance of evil. That's a totally different topic. Every form of evil. Now we're not talking about things that look bad on the outside. We're talking about things that are clearly defined as evil in Scripture. And so you see how that difference changes. But I'll bet some of you have heard sermons on avoid the appearance of evil when one little word study would have shown a better way to do that. So um, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do the series was to uncover some Christian mythology that uh, many of us have fallen prey to. And I think the same thing has happened in all categories of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Give an example. Here's a marriage myth. A marriage myth that says Christian marriage is defined by the fact that wives submit, that that's what defines a Christian marriage. So a husband needs to make sure that his wife submits so that they have a Christian marriage. The Bible never tells a husband to make his wife submit. Never says that one time. That's, in fact, it's just the opposite. There's a divorce myth that we've tried to uncover, that it is somehow the unforgivable sin, that divorce is always a sin. In the tradition that I grew up in, a divorce is adultery. The thing is the same. Divorce and adultery are interchangeable terms. That's a myth. And then there's a remarriage myth. We'll look at, again, Romans 7, uh, 2 and 3, that doesn't distinguish it between a spouse and a former spouse. That's a, that's a myth based not in the text, but based in tradition. So anytime the church believes its own mythology, instead of believing the careful exegesis of Scripture, then it tends toward legalism and we tend toward losing the focus on the gospel of Christ. So that was, that was some of my reasons for wanting to do the series. So there it is. Okay. Uh, let's, 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 let's touch a little bit on Romans 7, uh, 7, 3. Although the purpose of Romans 7, 3 is not a direct teaching on the marriage relationship, uh, can't it still be clearly stating the truth in the passage uh, much like the purpose of many Trinitarian verses is usually not directly teaching on the Trinity, like mm-hmm. kind of like that it seems, uh, it seems clear to say according to Romans 7 uh, verse 3 that if a person remarries while a former spouse is still living it is an adulterous relationship in, in God's eyes um, why would Paul have said uh, she will be called an adulteress if she wasn't, in fact, an adulteress. Um, that is, uh, it can't be that it refers merely to her reputation being spoiled because she has actually married another person. Okay, I covered this in detail in the last message, but I want to revisit it a little bit. Romans 7, 3. I heard some of you turning there. I love Grace Bible Church. You bring your Bibles. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Um, Let me do the first part of the question that even though it's not a direct teaching on the marriage relationship, and I've talked about this two or three times, verses two and three are illustrations of verses one and four that basically makes the point that just like the death of a husband releases a wife from the obligation to the marriage, the death of Christ releases us from the law. And so there is a, there is a soteriological point here. And, and I will say this, I'll reiterate what I said last week, the purpose of a passage matters. That is a big deal. Um, we don't get, in other words, if I'm preaching through Romans, I'm probably not going to preach a marriage sermon from verses two and three, because that's not what the text is about. 
It's about the fact that the death of Christ freed us from the law. And marriage and the, the death of a spouse is used as an illustration. But I also talked about the fact that the component parts of any illustration in Scripture are always true on their own merits. That is true. Uh, everything that it says about marriage is completely true. Now, the part of the question where it says, it seems to clearly say that if a person remarries while a former spouse is still living, it is an adulterous relationship in God's eyes. Here's where it says this, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the, the difficulty here is that it is very easy and I've done this a thousand times. I point no fingers because I've done this a thousand times. It is very easy to bring our own preconceived notions to the text. The fact is that the verse never says former spouse. It never says former husband. It just says her husband. Bringing in the idea of former spouse is bringing my own idea to the text because it's just not there. And by the way, in Deuteronomy 24, um, the, the classic passage we looked at several times, verses one through four, Moses is super clear when he references a man to whom a woman used to be married, he called him her former husband, not her husband. And so we just want to be really careful um, to not make a text say what I wish it would say. Uh, and that's that, you know, everybody makes that, that uh, little error. But ultimately, it doesn't say former spouse. It just says her husband. And so we have to take it at face value. Um, this is an interpreting based not on what the text actually says, but it's bringing the presupposition to the text. And the presupposition is that the marriage is an unbreakable covenant. And we can't ever say that because Moses didn't believe that, Jesus didn't believe that, and Paul didn't believe that. Um, they, they allow for marriage to be a breakable covenant. Um, we wouldn't have God's word on what happens after a divorce. Divorce is allowed in Scripture. The, scripture is not excited about it. Um, God never commands divorce. In fact, I read you a quote from John MacArthur um, where he talked about that God allows for divorce, but he never commands it. That if he had commanded it, can you imagine how much worse the abuse of divorce would have been among the Pharisees? Um, so divorce is allowed. It's not, not excited about it in Scripture, but it is allowed. So uh, we just want to read the text as the text is there and not read our own presuppositions into it, which we are all guilty of at one level or another. I mean, we have a theology, and it's hard not to read that into the text. That's um, something we'll talk about a little bit more. So hope that's helpful a little bit. Okay. Um, but marriage still is a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. Um, since marriage is this picture of Christ's faithfulness to the church, isn't living a single life after a divorce preferable? Uh, to remarriage, since by remaining single, the believer is still demonstrating to the world the fidelity of Christ. Uh, for example, let's say my spouse may have been unfaithful to me, but I remain faithful to him or her, and thus I proclaim the love of Christ for his bride by, by this testimony. Isn't, isn't it a godly trait to stick to one's own vows even to your, to your own hurt? So if I'm understanding that right, um, basically, if for whatever reason somebody is divorced, then at that point, remarriage should not be an option because it is, a, it is you staying faithful to your, your former spouse. Um, it is correct. Yes, marriage is a picture of Christ's faithfulness to the church. Absolutely. But that's not the sole purpose of marriage. 
And that's, that is a purpose. It's not the sole purpose of marriage. Marriage is for God's glory and for mankind's blessing. And we looked at this in the very first message we, we looked at. And just to, as a review, marriage is for the glory of God. It's the means by which humanity fulfills the mandate to uh, populate the earth. Uh, it provides a portrait of God's relationship with his people. That's what we're talking about. Christ in the church, God in Israel, so forth. God receives glory when a Christ-exalting marriage demonstrates the honor uh, to God through their obedience. It, it's a blessing to the family. It's life-changing to many people around them. Um, there's a big difference between marriages that strive for personal happiness and those that strive for obedience to the Lord, and that gives, gives God glory. And so marriage is for the glory of God. But marriage is also for the blessing of mankind. It, it promotes the basic happiness of the couple. In, in our circles, we're always kind of hesitant to talk about happiness. Well, I'm not happy. I'm joyful. Well, I kind of like to be both. I don't know about you. But happiness is, is something that God does delight in and that he provides marriage for. Um, Genesis 2.18 says that being alone is not good. So he provides a companion. Uh, Solomon writes proverbial in Ecclesi- uh, proverbially in Ecclesiastes uh, 4. He says that life is much more easily managed with a partner there to uplift you and to keep you warm and to give you strength. Marriage authorizes sexual intimacy, provides that God-ordained venue and and place for the mysteries and pleasures of sexual union. Marriage stimulates holiness and Christ-likeness. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It should be so one spouse sharpens another, I think. That that works well, too. Um, You're in a situation where you're constantly having to show grace as commanded by Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. You're constantly having to do Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then I I talked extensively about the fact that marriages benefit communities. If you're a, a sociologist or a historian, you can study and understand that cultures rise and fall on the on the back of marriage. That as marriage is destroyed, then ultimately the society is destroyed. The society and children are best served by stable marriages. I'll never forget taking a class in, in a graduate school many, many years ago. Not a Christian school, not a Christian class. And uh, the, the subject of homosexuality came up in this discussion. And a man uh, made a comment, didn't claim to be a Christian at all. But he said homosexuality destroys societies because they completely contribute nothing except chaos. They don't contribute children. They don't contribute families. They take other people's children. And that was just a sociological uh, observation they made. So marriage benefits uh, in so many ways. So yes, uh, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, but that's not the only purpose let me talk about the idea of demonstrating uh, fidelity to your former spouse by not ever remarrying. That sounds wonderful, and for you, you might say, that's what I need to do. But this is a very slippery slope because Scripture never commands that. There's never a command to do that, and it actually can turn into a form of legalism which gives requirements far beyond what Scripture actually requires. And I would also give this the reality test. This is purely anecdotal. This isn't scientific. But I've known a lot of divorced people. And I have never heard any of them say that someone came up to them and complimented them on how true they were staying to their former spouse. Nobody's there. That's not reality. Now, I have witnessed this. And there's a, there's a glorious 
uh, glorious principle here. I have witnessed a, a divorcee who chooses to remain single as long as there's any hope of reconciliation with that spouse. That's a choice you can make. But it's not a sense of showing the world somehow that uh, I'm, I'm faithful. I said this last week, if it's your personal conviction that remarriage after divorce is not okay, then you should never remarry. It's, it is a personal conviction. It's a Romans 14 issue. So I hope that's helpful. Um, the fact is, if you want to make a statement to the world about your faith in Christ, remaining faithful to a former spouse is not one of the ways that Scripture lists. It's just not there. It's not a command. Um, if you feel compelled to do that, then that's great. But we would never impose that on anybody else because it's just not in Scripture. There's not a verse I could point to to have you do that. So, Okay, um, simple question. Because <laughs> I'm reading it. Um, can a man in ministry who was divorced for his adultery be restored to ministry. Can we go on to the next question? Yes. No. Well, right. uh, yeah. So the standard that's in question here is the First Timothy 3, verse 2 standard, that an overseer, an elder, uh, must be, literally in Greek, a one-woman man. So let me address, first of all, what if, what if he was legitimately divorced? What if his previous wife either abandoned him or committed unrepentant adultery? And does that automatically disqualify him for ministry? I, I think there's really good arguments for both sides. Um, ultimately, the deciding factor is any given local body of believers making this decision. Um, I actually happen to have a personal friend who has been placed in that exact position. He, he, was, a, he was a pastor. His wife was not only um, abandoning him, but she was disciplined by the other elders in the church. He had to step down from ministry just because of the emotional weight it had put on him. But the, the question was, and, and I actually got to be involved in this situation to a certain degree, the question was, he didn't do anything. She abandoned him. And if you asked her, she would say, yeah, I'm abandoning him. And she abandoned her faith on top of that um, and openly said so. So the question was, I have these years of experience. I have this training. Am I on the shelf forever now? And so that was a question we kind of wrestled with. Ultimately, it goes to any local body of believers. Um, there's a reality here. The reality is it's probably a pretty hard sell to get a divorced man into ministry. That's just going to be a hard sell in, in most churches. But some churches might be so thankful for a faithful man that they can live with that um, with a good conscience. Um, this particular man, he, uh, he has uh, gone through a period of years of, of kind of walking through some things with, with godly other men and um, getting a lot of good advice. Uh, he was disappointed to find that one of the organizations, evangelical organizations that he has been associated with for years, um, cut his membership off the moment his divorce was final because they do not recognize divorce as uh, legitimate in any circumstance whatsoever. And so they canceled his membership and that was sad to him. But in good conscience, um, he's come to the conclusion and I would agree with him that there may be a congregation that's, that's desperate for a pastor. Uh, he said, now that I'm not married, I'm really cheap. It doesn't cost, me, cost much to support me anymore. And... Um, He's got 30 years experience in the ministry. So ultimately, it's going to be a local body of believers making that decision. I think it's a hard sell. I think, you, I think that would be a long process. Um, but ultimately, if he's divorced for, le for legitimate grounds, then there's at least grounds to, to look at that 
Um, and there's lots and lots of ways to be a ministry other than just being the, the, the lead pastor and so forth. But back to, to the, the question at hand, what about the man in ministry divorced for adultery? Or maybe, what about this one? He committed adultery, his wife has forgiven him, he's repented and his marriage is still intact. I mean, we, we, we've talked about this. We've talked about the fact that God's grace should extend as far as you're willing to extend it, that, that you as a spouse always have the option to forgive. What about that situation? Does this mean that he's somehow now a lesser Christian? Well, obviously, if you've listened to this series, no, we would never say that. We, we, he's under the blood of Christ. Does this make him unforgivable? Obviously not. But it does make him having a life worthy of being imitated kind of a hard sell at that point. The qualification is to be a one-woman man. And the fact of the matter is, is that he is no longer a one-woman man. It doesn't mean he's not forgiven. It doesn't mean that his sin is not as far as, thrown as far as the east is from the west. But it does mean that it was something that he had control over and he chose not to do. Uh, all of the qualifications for an elder are things under his control, um, that you're managing your own household well, that you're not a, a fighter, that you're patient, and that you are a one-woman man. And so to make that choice, that doesn't make him unforgivable. I'm, I just got to tell you, for me personally, I couldn't stomach it. I couldn't do it. I think generally men who are quote-unquote restored to ministry often make, an, make it happen on their own. I have known one man uh, who committed adultery, repented immediately, worked through issues in his marriage, stepped down from ministry immediately, and has made a decision that he will be the best uh, well-trained layman in the church for the rest of his life. And he's had a whole other career now, and he leads a Bible study. He is a wonderful uh, under-shepherd in the church, but he will never in his conscience hold that position. He never wants to do that, and I would agree with that decision. But I think most men who honestly, who say I've been restored to ministry, I think they do it on their own. Um, a decade ago, the, the big news was Ted Haggard. Do you remember him in the news? He was the pastor of New Life Church in Colorado Springs, and he was caught in a three-year-long homosexual prostitution pattern um, plus methamphetamines thrown into that time. Other men came forward about Ted's uh, sexual exploits. About three years later, Ted Haggard declared himself cured and he planted a new church in Colorado Springs and he still, by the way, identifies himself, according to GQ magazine, as a bisexual. No, 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 no. Not gonna happen. So ultimately, one woman man means something and you might say, well, that seems like that's a higher standard than everyone else. Why is that? Because that's a higher standard than everyone else. Because we must hold, hold our leaders to a higher standard. So I, I would say I don't see a situation in which a man can be restored to ministry when he has committed adultery. Um, yes, he's forgiven. Yes, he is under the grace of God. Yes, he can even have a marriage that thrives um, as a result of forgiveness and all of that. But he has, uh, you know, any more so if you found out that I, I went out and went to a bar and punched some guy in the face and then came to church on Sunday and said, oh, sorry about that. I don't think that would fly with you. Anybody here would think that was okay? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to see that. So go ahead, David. Okay, um, another question that you have received. I'll just, I'll just read it. Um, I read an article about the exception clauses of Matthew 5 and 19 several months ago by Peter uh, Ditzel. Uh, 
from wordofhisgrace.org. Ditzel's contention is that the exception clause in Matthew is written for a Jewish audience and therefore refers to a Mary Joseph situation in which there was a question of impropriety during the betrothal period. Uh, My question is, um, could the exception clause only refer to the Jewish betrothal period in light of the fact that the other Gospels don't have this prohibition? Um, And since, if this view is valid, it easily reconciles the verses that seem to conflict with Jesus' teaching. All right, let's, let's take that apart. I want to start at the end of the question. No other verses seem to conflict with Jesus' teaching. Um, I operate under the assumption that, that Scripture is self, um, self-evaluating and self-interpreting and that just because one part of Scripture doesn't give all the information that another one does, that doesn't mean there's a conflict. Um, I've already established in, in, in some of my messages that Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience. That's true. Um, they would have no legal or religious context to understand, for example, the issues that Paul brought to the table in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul's context is a different setting altogether. It's totally different. Um, Putting both settings together really allows us to cover what God wants us to know and understand about divorce as a whole. So just because one text doesn't give the totality of what God wants us to know about divorce doesn't place that text in conflict with the other. And I, I spent quite a bit of time on this. Uh, let me give you an example. This is one that always makes us a little uncomfortable. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James 2.24, You see that the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we say, wait, that's, that's discouraging to me because that sounds like a contradiction. Well, no, when you take apart what James is trying to say and what Paul is trying to say, you see that they're approaching the same problem from two different angles and that the two actually harmonize. What James is saying is that you are not demonstrated to be one who is justified by simply saying, I have faith. You are demonstrated to be justified as one whose works have changed. Your life has changed. That's an accurate statement, just like Paul's is. Also helps us understand that the other Gospels, uh, by the way, uh, Mark and Luke, they don't have that prohibition. When he says the exception clause, he's talking about that divorce is not allowable except for uh, porneia, sexual immorality. The other Gospels not having that prohibition doesn't mean anything except the fact that Mark and Luke decided not to include it. Um, I gave some other reasons for that in a previous message. Why did they decide not to include it? I don't know. There's some good possible reasons, but it falls into the same category as Matthew putting one angel at the tomb of Jesus and Luke putting two angels at the the tomb of Jesus. Do they conflict? No. Do they harmonize? Yes, they do. We just, we don't pit them against each other. But let's talk about um, the idea that uh, Ditzel gave that the exception clause, divorce for immorality, pertaining, uh, pertains only to the betrothal period, which is a Jewish tradition, and therefore it doesn't apply to us today. It doesn't make any difference to us. Um, I'm pretty certain that John Piper holds that view as well. Um, that, that, that is his view. Uh, so Ditzel is not, uh, he's not saying anything that others haven't said. And it's a fairly popular view. And by the way, his website um, has a lot of good things to offer. It's, it's actually really helpful in a lot of areas, including marriage and divorce. Um, I am going to be fair about this. I did search and I couldn't find that exact article that, that Ditzel wrote, um, but I think it represents a pretty well-known view, so I'm, I'm pretty certain that that view that Ditzel would have 
uh, is accurately represented? Well, let me give you the short answer first. Um, Very well said by Jim Neuheiser in his book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. He points out that proponents of a no divorce, no remarriage view maintain that porneia, sexual immorality, refers to sexual sin during the engagement period or other prohibited sexual activity. But he says this, uh, Neuheiser says, quote, a fatal problem with the view that Jesus is speaking of fornication during betrothal is that Matthew 19 is addressing grounds for divorce and remarriage, not grounds for breaking an engagement. So that's the, that's the short answer. Now let me give you the longer answer because um, the case that's made for it is a fairly good case. And so we want to look at it carefully. Um, D.A. Carson, he wrote a really helpful book called Exegetical Fallacies. And he divides these mistakes in Bible study methods into several large categories. There's uh, word study fallacies, grammatical fallacies, logical fallacies, presuppositional fallacies, historical fallacies. Um, Those are the big categories that, that he identifies. In my opinion, the view that exception clauses are really talking about betrothal actually violates several of those fallacies. And I wanna, I wanna just unpack this for you a little bit. Under logical fallacies, one of the, one of the fallacies that Ditzel, I, I guess, uh, commits here is what's, what Carson calls unwarranted associative jumps. An unwarranted associative jump is when you allow a word or a phrase to trigger an associated idea or concept or experience that is, doesn't really have any relation to the actual text, but then it's used to interpret the text. In other words, this looks a little bit like betrothal. Therefore, we will use betrothal to interpret the text. That's an associative jump fallacy. I think it also commits the fallacy of false disjunctions. A false disjunction is where you create a conflict, an either-or argument where one doesn't have to exist um, necessarily. Yes, a betrothal did require a legal divorce um, to dissolve the agreement. No, that doesn't mean that this can be the only option that Jesus is speaking of. That's creating a conflict where it doesn't have to be there. He's not speaking of this option because betrothal isn't even in the context of the conversation. So there's, there's those two logical fallacies. And I think he also commits a presuppositional fallacy, one called, um, don't try to remember this, I can't even remember it, omission of distanciation. What does that mean? Let me interpret that for you. It means forgetting to distance yourself from the text. Now, you would say, well, aren't you supposed to get close to the text of Scripture? That's not what this is talking about. Distancing yourself from the text means distancing your own presuppositions, your own ideas, your own philosophy. Uh, It's reading your own theology or ideology into the text, not distancing your own personal feelings from a text. And so looking at it, I, I really have trouble believing that those who hold that that's the real issue in view, I can't see that they got that from the text because it's just simply not there. And the bottom line is the betrothal view is brought to the text and the text is made to obey that presupposition. That's not okay. That's not a valid Bible study method. By the way, I did tell you that Ditzel has a lot of useful things on his website, but just as an example, uh, he also uses exactly the same three exegetical fallacies to teach that the Bible commands homeschooling. And this is reading a a gray area issue of conscience into the text of Scripture and making it a command. And and boy, I I don't know how many times I've committed those fallacies because I want to believe something so much and I see it in the text of Scripture and I'll even preach a sermon on it. But if we're going to be honest and be intellectually fair, that is not in the text. And so to to put it there um, is 
it's just not okay because it's not there. So. Okay, thanks. Uh, let's uh, let's just go back to talk about some of the uh, strong uh, strong descriptions uh, descriptions that are used for marriage in light of uh, the phrase "What God has joined together, let no man separate," and no longer two, but one flesh. Is it even possible that man can sever a work of God? It seems that if God's work, uh, that is God's joining, cannot be undone by humans, then it would make sense why God sees any future sexual union as adultery in his eyes. Uh, That is, humans might dissolve the bond, but perhaps the bond is not truly dissolved in God's eyes. Okay, so that let's review this a little. This was a statement made by Jesus in Matthew 19. Uh, to the Pharisees, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, first of all, Jesus can't be saying that the marriage relationship can't be severed. He can't be saying that because in the same text, he gives one reason that it can be severed. So we don't have him contradicting himself. But I think it's important to remember that the problem with the Pharisees wasn't so much their individual marriages. That wasn't what Jesus was nailing them for, even though that was a problem. The problem with the Pharisees was that they had wholesale pulled the rug out from under the entire institution of marriage. That they were setting a horrible example for everybody. And so I don't take the what in what God has joined together as speaking of every individual single marriage. Uh, I don't think that's what it can be. Jesus would be contradicting himself. The what is the institution of marriage, what God has joined together. It's the institution. And the context, I think, shows this. Jesus says this immediately after having said in the previous verse, not about not teaching about individual marriages, but teaching about the institution of marriage as given in Genesis 2.24. And so that begs the question then, is the marriage covenant unbreakable except by death? Well, if you believe that, then you should never remarry someone else for the sake of conscience. And we've said that before. But the fact is, is that Jesus is nailing them for breaking apart the institution, not for every individual marriage. Um, that He would be contradicting Moses in uh, Deuteronomy 24. So uh, I take the what as the institution. And that's what he's teaching on. That's what his, that's what his, uh, his thrust is there. So... Um, can man sever a work of God? Yes. It's not a happy thing, but as we, as we said before, sometimes divorce is a mercy. Sometimes it's a judgment. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. Um, it is given, Jesus even said, because of the hardness of your hearts, that it is, a, it is an escape valve for uh, the innocent who are in a, in a marriage where they're being oppressed, abused, um, and, and so forth. And we covered that extensively. So... Um, there's one marriage that I'm glad can't ever be severed, and that is the marriage that we have to Christ. And I'm really glad for that because he will never divorce us. He will never let us go. But the reality is divorce exists because we live in a sinful world. And God is gracious and kind to allow some escape valves when sin gets out of hand. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, let's let's uh, try a nice, easy application question. Um, so I've heard you talk about the importance of listening in a marriage on the part of both of the spouses. Can you uh, now give us some practical tips for being a better listener to my spouse? Yes, keep your mouth shut. 
Well, we make that easy. Now, I actually, uh, I preached a message on that at the end of the summer, and um, I won't ask you if you remember it or not. That's always destructive to my ego. Um, <laughs> but I preached on how to successfully uh, listen to others, and tip number one was listen to that message again. Uh, that, that would be helpful to you. But we looked at Proverbs, and we looked at why to listen, how to listen, and to whom to listen. And... Um, you know, I, I think the, the best thing to say, first of all, is that listening is the best practical means to avoid bitterness and avoid building up resentments. Listen, there are plenty of people who end up at, in divorce court, not because of adultery, not because of abandonment, but because I've built up resentment and bitterness for so long that my walls are so thick, I can never love you again. And, that, and that's wrong. That's illegitimate. How do you avoid that? Well, listening. Listening avoids that. I define listening as receiving information understanding the information and then receiving information, understanding the information, acting on the information and acting on the information to the glory of God. And I gave five components of good listening using Proverbs and and some other scriptures and I'll just list these real quick that you stay in the moment. Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That is the keep your mouth shut part. Second, remember that your own mouth is your own worst enemy. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight. the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Third, listen with the possibility of changing your point of view. Proverbs eighteen seventeen speaks of that. Fourth, listen with the attitude that information, even about yourself, is a gift. The information is a gift. Proverbs 19, verse 20 says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And then the fifth component of good listening was listen with the intention to act on that knowledge. So it's really just a decision and, and some of us are better listeners than others. Some of us struggle with it more than others. It's a decision to, to say, I'm going to listen until I've heard and I'm going to hear until I've listened. And that's a, that's a lifetime. Uh, I'm not a great listener. And so, I mean, preaching that message was horrible for me because I had to really think about it in my own heart. Um, but it is how you avoid, if you say to your spouse, you always seem bitter against me, Well, you might also want to ask the follow-up question, am I listening to you? Because that bitterness might be your fault. Not that they're not responsible for their own sin, but it might be that you're not listening to them and there's this this buildup because there's no place for those expressions to go. So um, that's a reasonable question to ask. Am I listening to you enough? And probably most of the time the answer is no. So we keep working at it. Okay, great. Great applications. Okay, so let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, remarriage again. Um, you chose it. Um, <laughs> although there is a lack of scripture directly prohibiting remarriage after divorce, there also doesn't seem to be any positive affirmation of it. Instead, uh, shouldn't uh, the clear statements such as a wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives from 1 Corinthians seven thirty-nine and but if her husband dies, she is at liberty. Be the guides we live by. So uh, just to rephrase that, since there isn't a prohibition of remarriage and there doesn't seem to be a command or a, a direct affirmation for it, I would, I would semi-disagree with the second part. Um, I went through eight things last week that positively affirm remarriage, um, but they're not strong. Uh, there is no thou shalt remarry immediately after divorce. There, there isn't that. Um, but one of the things I would remind us of and point out is that all through Scripture, and this is an established historical fact. This is not opinion. This is not something we get to change. All throughout Scripture and in Bible times, divorce 
was for the purpose of remarriage. A woman getting divorced for any reason, if she didn't remarry, she was probably going to starve to death. That's just the reality that divorce was for the purpose of remarriage. And so um, she didn't have the options uh, that that maybe they would have um, today. But the idea that shouldn't we use just the clear statements of Scripture, um, that puts us down the road once again of the exegetical fallacy, unwarranted generalizations and over-specifications. What is that fallacy? That says that you use one example to extrapolate a generalization that's then applied across the board. Um, the clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 7.39 is that a widow can remarry. But it's not a, a good principle for us to generalize that to every other situation. Um, we also want to be careful about taking um, pet scriptures. And I've done this. I've done this a thousand times. We do this. Um, the one that seems to fit my own worldview and to kind of camp out on that one and emphasize those. We need to emphasize the whole counsel of God. And it's not easy. Um, teaching on marriage and divorce is, is like gathering pieces of pie from all over the country and trying to assemble the pie together again. It is not an easy teaching. Um, regarding the fact that there's no prohibition against remarriage in, in Scripture, that is generally true with the exception of 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 where two people professing faith in Christ when there's still a possibility of reconciliation, that is their option. They should not remarry. And that makes total sense to us. But there's a reality, and this is, what, this is why 1 Corinthians 7 is here, is to address reality in a sinful world that often one of those spouses has said, no way, not in a million years, there's nothing you could do to drag me back. In that case, the other spouse is free to do what he or she wants. Um, it's sad, but that is reality. That's, that's what happens. Let me address the last part that clear statements such as this should be the guides that we live by. If you as a believer make the decision to follow or to allow 1 Corinthians 7.39 to regulate a larger scope of possibilities with the conclusion that remarriage is not okay, then that should be the guide that you live by. But it is not the guide that you think everyone else should live by. Does that make sense? If, if that is your conviction, then yes, you live by it. Uh, give an example. Our family has uh, homeschooled our children for the past 20 years. Um, there's a lot of very, very good reasons to do this. But Scripture does not support me taking the so-called clear homeschool command of Deuteronomy 6, verse 7 to teach the law of God to my children as a clear-cut homeschool command. It's not there. This ignores the historical context. It ignores the covenant context. It ignores the cultural context. So for me, Sylvia and I, we, we feel like we would be shirking what we believe God has called us to do if we did anything else, because it turns out to be a really useful tool for accomplishing a lot of uh, good things with our children. It's been a phenomenal experience. But I've been preaching nearly every Sunday for 20 years, and I have never once preached a sermon on why you ought to homeschool. Why? Because Scripture does not support that. It is a reasonable application to a principle, but it's simply not commanded. That would be an unwarranted generalization and specification exegetical fallacy. So we want to be careful with that. Let the text speak to what the text is speaking to. If there are reasonable principles to apply, then apply them, but we don't take it and generalize it to everything. Um, Now you're getting into the realm of David and Goliath, uh, typical uh, interpretation of scripture that, you know, David and Goliath teaches us that we can conquer the giants in our life. Now now we're going down that road. Uh, It doesn't teach that, so...
Okay. Uh, let's let's go to let's go to Deuteronomy. Let's go. Let's deal with the prohibition in Deuteronomy twenty four four. Uh, what could be God's righteous reason for the prohibition in Deuteronomy 24? Um, a new sexual relationship after a divorce puts the woman in a state of defilement, and even reuniting with husband number one after the death of husband number two is seen as detestable to God. Uh, does this support the idea that marriage cannot be severed in God's regard? Yeah, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 has been the, uh, been the subject of arguments for literally thousands of years. And so in the next five minutes, I probably won't resolve that to everybody's uh, satisfaction. But I did mention this last, in our last message that, that the only law in these verses about divorce and remarriage is that a woman can't return to her first husband after having been married again. That's the only law. Uh, the short answer to that whole question is we're not under that law anyway. So it doesn't make any difference. But the statement, a new sexual relationship after divorce puts the woman in a state of defilement. I would say that's actually a, that's a, that's a popular position. I think it's a shaky one, though. Um, let me read that verse. Then her former husband, who has sent her away, may not take her again to his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, first of all, there is no general agreement as to what the defilement is. There's no agreement as to that. But I pointed this out last time. I'll give you a little more detail now. This is going to get really boring for about 30 seconds, but it's important. The verb, she had been defiled. This is one word in Hebrew. And this is what's called a hotpael perfect verb. Okay, a hotpael verb is a passive form of a hitpael verb. I just know that you're going to use that in your quiet time in the morning. But what it, what it means is, is it's reflexive and it's passive. What does this mean? It means that the object is being acted upon. Translation, she has been forced to defile herself. This is not something she did. This is something that was done to her. Not something she did wrong. And the text never says that the sexual relationship in the second marriage is what defiled her. It doesn't say that. In fact, there's a much better case for the fact that the defiling happened when the first husband sent her away in the first place because the text allows for, and this was the misuse of the text that the Pharisees were guilty of, to say, I'm sending you away to look like an adulteress even though I'm the guilty one. How is she defiled? She's thrown out on the street and their community assumes that she is an adulteress. That's her defiling. So no, it doesn't support the idea that remarriage cannot be severed from God's viewpoint um, I, I, I would remind us that sadly uh, God divorced Israel Jeremiah 3, Isaiah 50 that God is divorced and um, of course that's a slightly different situation but uh, Deuteronomy 24 it, it is there to have one command a command that does not apply to us today but it does demonstrate that divorce in, in horrible situations was allowed. And Jesus is our great interpreter to say God allowed it, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of hearts of the husbands. This wasn't about the wives. It was about the husbands. So hope that helps a little. Yes, thank you. Um, okay, practical question. Uh, what do I say to counsel a husband or wife 
who truly has a difficult spouse to live with. Maybe someone who is angry or naggy or generally unpleasant. What do I say? Is naggy, is that the Greek word or is that the... Uh, uh, Nageo. Nageo, okay, yes. (laughs) That was the highlight of the whole night right there. I've got more. Well, that's that's where thoughts of unbiblical divorce begin to creep into the heart and the mind. Because somebody's hard to live with. When you begin to view marriage exclusively for the, it, through the lens of what's in it for me, um, then you start to keep your list of wrongs. And we've all done that, but it's wrong to do it. Marriage is characterized by sacrifice. And the Apostle Paul even said very honestly in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, that he wished everyone was like him, single. That he knew the benefits of singleness. And he, he basically said, Man, this is easy. There is no complication to this. But as soon as you stop extending grace and and purposefully thinking loving and kind thoughts toward your spouse, all you're going to see is their sin. And then bitterness begins to creep in such that no matter what they do, no matter what they say, you can't see it in a positive light. You're unable to do it. I um, went to a seminar years ago by a marriage and family counselor who didn't claim to be a believer, but he did took thousands of hours of videotapes of marriages in in marriage counseling. And he identified that when a man or a woman starts making certain facial expressions on a regular basis, the number one one being the rolling of the eyes upward and away from your spouse, that he could predict with 90% certainty whether divorce was going to happen or not. Because there was this bitterness and this exasperation that reached a point where nothing they could say or do would be helpful. And maybe you've been in that situation where it's almost like where you, no matter what you say, it's like you're making it worse and, and you're trying to figure out what to do. So it all starts in the mind. And Paul gives the solution, Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so if you are living with somebody who's difficult, um, you might be part of the problem. Maybe they're difficult because they're tired of living with you and that's hard on them. But what you think is, is uh, everything. What did Jesus Christ choose to think on the cross? He chose to think, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That was his choice. But your spouse and, and you, if you're both believers, you're accountable to God. Part of that accountability includes being accountable to brothers and sisters in Christ and you are the top sibling in Christ to your spouse. You're the top sibling. So there is a responsibility to point out sin. It's not a weapon to use for manipulation. Chuck Swindoll used to say, if confrontation makes you feel good, then you shouldn't be doing it. I think that's a good rule to live by. But we do have a responsibility. But you can do some self-examination as well. Uh, Generally speaking, someone who is unpleasant to live with or nagging or difficult, that doesn't usually happen in a vacuum. Usually there's other factors involved and you can honestly ask, what am I doing to contribute to that uh, cycle, to that dynamic? Maybe a wife who is unpleasant and harsh doesn't feel listened to or cherished. Maybe a husband who is is grumpy and sharp, maybe he doesn't feel respected or, or loved. So the bottom line is we're called to be spouses that honor the Lord. And what our spouse does um, is mostly not in my control. I, I can have an impact on it. My wife has an impact on me, but ultimately it's not in our control. And so we, we do what we do as husbands and wives to the glory of God. 
And that's that's the best motivation. And and I'm still working at being a better husband, and I find it easier to do when I focus on on obeying the Lord and not just pleasing my wife, but on trying to obey the Lord. Um, that's easier for me. This is always something. There's always something you can do differently. There's always something you can do differently. I'll never forget my dad saying, "There's only one thing you can control in every single circumstance, and that is your own attitude about it." That's pretty good wisdom. Titus two verse five gives us a reason for loving our spouses for the sake of Christ that the word of God may not be reviled. And I talked about this, I think, last time that in a marriage where the marriage looks just as bad as a, as a worldly marriage does, that reviles the word of God because the word of God says that we're changed creatures, that we're new creations in Christ. And when we're not demonstrating that, then that reviles his word. So, Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to go off script. I'm suddenly afraid. <laughs> no, I think that's just one of the reasons why I've really appreciated this study. It's made me think about my marriage and the fact that I am building or breaking my marriage essentially from the moment I walk down the aisle or walk away from, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I didn't do that. Um, yeah, it's just really encouraging to think about that. Um, another question back in Matthew 19 uh, does the response of the disciples in Matthew 19:10, as well as Jesus' answer in 19:11 and 12, demonstrate that Jesus was advocating a celibate lifestyle after a divorce rather than a remarriage? Yeah. So Jesus gave his teaching in Matthew 19:3 through 9, where, he, where um, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and the disciples said to him in Matthew verse 10, 19, verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Well, again, if Jesus is advocating a celibate lifestyle after divorce, then Paul contradicted Jesus and Deuteronomy 24, which assumes remarriage after divorce, and that, that no longer has relevance, and now we're having contradictions happen. Um, and I mentioned this a moment ago, for a divorced woman in Jesus' day, she didn't have options that women have today. She couldn't go back to school and get her law degree. She couldn't do anything else. So for Jesus to advocate a celibate lifestyle after divorce would actually be quite cruel. It, it would be to say, I am telling you that you need to essentially be homeless for the rest of your life. I think it's also important to remember that divorce essentially replaced the death penalty um, for adultery and remarriage was assumed after the dissolution of marriage, um, either by divorce or, or death. So how did the disciples answer? They essentially said, this is hard to grasp. It would be easier to not marry, not necessarily not remarry, but just not marry, period. And so he agrees with them. Jesus agrees, and he tells them that this hard teaching is at least partially a matter of conscience. And he says something that's very unusual for Jesus. And we don't hear this out of his mouth very often. In the very next verse, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So to whom what is given? I think the best way to look at this in the context of marriage, Jesus said some can take it and some can't. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says that singleness and marriage are both gifts of God. They're given as a gift. So here's, here's Paul's take on what Jesus said. To the unmarried, this is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8. To the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, Jesus is saying some can receive this and some can't. 
If you're divorced and believe for whatever reason you need to stay single, if you're gifted with the ability to do that, then by all means do that. Absolutely. But if not, get married with whatever blessings and natural difficulties will go with that. It's very unusual to hear Jesus say, some people can accept this and some can't. It's very unusual for him. So, hope that's helpful. Yes, yes. Um, all right, next question uh, deals with another one of those great words that you use that has been bouncing around in my mind, penance. Although the church is not called to give penance, that is, demanding that a divorcee not remarry for whatever reason, mustn't we all reap what we sow? Um, also, how is the sadness of a life sentence of loneliness after a divorce with no remarriage different from any other difficult life God may ordain for us? If God leaves some paralyzed or bereaved, or sick or mistreated, can he not expect believers who have gone through divorce to suffer the consequences, even though we may perceive this as cruel? This is a, this is a terrific question, and... To be fair, I have known divorced people who actually felt great relief in their own hearts at just making a decision that they were going to remain single for the rest of their lives. That was a relief to them, and they, they to a certain degree, sort of felt like it, that the, the pain and suffering that they were enduring as a result of that, it kind of was purging to them, and that felt good to them. And, and so I, I can sort of understand that. But I want to make a couple of points here. First of all, um, the paralyzed, the bereaved, the sick, the mistreated, um, we can add cancer, stroke, whatever into that. Generally speaking, those are life circumstances that don't involve choice. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata is famous for, for saying that when she wakes up every morning as a quadriplegic, she doesn't have the option to say, I don't want to do this today. She doesn't have that option. But in the case of a divorced believer to decide to not marry for the sake of a life sentence of loneliness or, or worse, to choose not to marry because some church authority demands that they not marry, um, now that borders on trying to make up for our sins. And so we want to be really cautious about that. Now, obviously, in a general proverbial sense, of course, we reap what we sow. And that, that is a, a life principle given in Scripture but the whole point of the cross of Jesus Christ is that ultimately Jesus reaps what we sowed. That's the point of the cross. So what do we do with sin? Well, Scripture says in Matthew one twenty one that we're saved from our sin. Acts 2.38, our sins are forgiven. Acts 3.25, our sins are passed over. Romans 4.7, or Romans 3.25, rather, our sins are passed over. Romans 4.7, they're covered. Romans 11.27, they're taken away. Hebrews 1.3, they're purged. Romans 4, 8 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Count means credit or impute. Now, if someone decides that they need to stay single because that's what God has called them to, great. Paul says that's a gift. Jesus says that that's a gift. But if someone is told or coerced or maybe even self-convinced that they need to stay single in order to reap what they sow, in order to serve an artificial life sentence of loneliness, now this has become penance. And that essentially becomes no different than the Catholic who wants to walk on bloody knees with a cross on his back as some sort of artificial self-imposed punishment. It becomes no different. And so we want to be careful with that. Uh, again, if somebody in their own heart says, I am not going to remarry, I just don't feel right about it, then don't. 
Don't do that. But if you think you're somehow gaining God's favor by living a life of loneliness on purpose, that's not a purpose either. And um, so we don't do penance. We want to be careful of that. Okay. Um, let's, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. This is, uh, uh, since 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 um, is called a command... Doesn't this clearly show that God's ideal is not pro-remarriage? That is true. It is a command. Let me read it to you real quickly. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, to the, marriage I give, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So, as I've said before, that is a command to two married believers who are both openly professing faith in Christ. They have separated for whatever reason in the cultural context of the Corinthian church. It was probably because um, of some uh, misconceived notion of holiness by separating apart from one another because uh, sex of any kind was considered to be sinful in some of their minds. And so Paul corrected that as well. Um, so to say that doesn't that clearly show that, Paul, that God's ideal is not pro-remarriage, that takes us again to the uh, exegetical fallacy that D.A. Carson calls unwarranted generalizations and over-specifications using one example to extrapolate a generalization that's de- then applied universally. What is God's ideal? God's ideal is a marriage that lasts for a lifetime. That is his ideal. He allows for divorce. He allows for remarriage as a grace and a mercy but we want to stay true to that, that particular group right there, two married believers. And we know that he's um, being specific there on purpose because uh, just a few verses later, he gives a different specification, the believer married to the unbeliever. And so he has a different set of circumstances there in that one. Okay, um, this next question is not a question. It's a statement, uh, so, but there's an implicit question in it, so I just want you to provide um, some thoughts on it. Okay. Um, the question goes like this. I've heard in some circles uh, of the advice uh, rule that in an unmarried couples, believers or those uh, from believing families who have had extramarital sex are pressured, uh, that is, or required to marry that person. Um, that since they've already consummated the marriage and have been united, they must be married, regardless of whether that is a wise decision or the original pursuit consideration uh, for one or both of those involved. Okay, so to to uh, shorten that up a little bit, um, there are a lot of circles that say, you know, you're my... 18 year old daughter and you had sex with your boyfriend you got to marry him that that's it because you've already consummated the, the marriage um, this is likely based on a very overzealous use of first corinthians six sixteen. or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for as it is written the two will become one flesh and by the way it betrays the misuse of scripture as a a, a rule book um, the bible is not a rule book it is a redemptive story um and I think it also makes a confusion. It confuses sex with marriage. A sexual relationship is not a marriage any more than marriage is defined solely by a sexual relationship. We, we don't confuse those two. Um, so we always want to go with what the text is saying. What's the context of 1 Corinthians 6.16? Well, verses 12 through 20 
is telling believers to flee sexual immorality of all kinds. And so Paul gives this example with the prostitute that this is a violation, it's a perversion of the one flesh principle of marriage. He's saying you're acting like you're married without all the covenant and promises that go with marriage. In other words, you're, you're trying to get all the candy without all the earning that goes before it. And I, I've had lots of talks with young men who say, I, I wanna marry my girlfriend. And I give them a list. Do you have a job? Do you have a house? Do you make money? Do you have a car? Do you have insurance? Go through all those things. Then you get to get married. And usually they lose interest. Well, I didn't want to do all that. I just want to get married. Well, sex and marriage go together. But what Paul is saying is that you violated this. You haven't done all the other things that make a marriage happen. And so he uses that example. But if we say that a premarital sexual relationship must require marriage, uh, the logical conclusion of this is pretty disturbing, actually. And if you took it to a logical extreme, does that include rape? Well, we would say, well, of course not. If that's an exception, then there are other exceptions. It's very simple. Making this a rule is a good way to ruin lives because the sin of premarital sex can be repented of, it can be recovered of. Marrying an abusive person or just marrying somebody because of a rule um, sometimes will ruin the whole life. And so that's just, that's just not wise. Um, what, you know, I, I've tried to put myself in that situation. What would I do with a young man who has violated one of my kids well, um, after trying not to beat him to a pulp, I'm going to evaluate, is this a godly young man who has repented of this or not? Um, if not, you know, if some guy off the street meets your daughter one time and they end up in a sexual relationship, are you going to say, I'm sorry, uh, strange motorcycle guy from out of town, you've got to marry my daughter? No, we're not going to do that. I, I could have shortened that, just said no. It didn't work. <laughs> Uh, really <laughs> yes alright we're, we're good then we're done uh, no uh, we're getting to some good questions actually uh, do you have any general advice for a believer who is considering dating another believer who is divorced um, specifically how much should a believer know about the circumstances of the other person's divorce before deciding to date that person more seriously Okay. First of all, I try not to operate in this topic anymore with general advice because then someone follows that up with, but what about when? And there's a thousand of those. It's the, but what about wins? They're the most important part of the discussion. And that's the flavor of 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul is giving guidance based in principles um, since not every single what about when can possibly uh, be covered. But if I was going to speak generally um, to this, there is a fact. The fact is, if you're uh, 23 years old, uh, there are a lot of 20 to 30-year-olds in your age bracket that are unmarried and ready to be married and spend a lifetime with a spouse. If you're 39 years old or 45 years old, that, that demographic just goes way down. And the fact is, other people in your general age category, it's another topic for another day, generally speaking, there's going to be more of them that have had shattered marriages. And that's just the reality. Um, so the, the, the pool to choose from changes. Um, but if we're going to give some principles, first of all, you don't violate your own conscience. If you, if you believe that even being near somebody who's divorced is wrong for you, then don't do it. And that's, that's an easy decision. But the question here, um, how much should the believer know about the circumstances of another person's divorce? That's easy, everything. 
everything because you are entrusting yourself to someone. And, and by the way, you don't make this decision based on what everybody's telling you to do. It's your call. Um, this is a great area. You, you have to live your life. Um, you're the one who has to live with the consequences of what you do. But you should know everything and not just from one source if possible. And, and I think if you even get a whiff that he's not being an open book, then be careful. But here's the biggest issue. Uh, for me personally, I think it'd be a violation of my conscience and, and hopefully for yours, that if there's even a remote chance that that person can reconcile with a former spouse, I'm not getting anywhere near that. I'm just not going to get near that because I, I don't want to get in the way of that chance of reconciliation. I need to be convinced that reconciliation is impossible. So that would be my, my general advice that I don't want to give. <laughs> okay, a follow-up. Follow-up question. Another general advice question. Um, if a believer got divorced uh, for what appears to be an unbiblical reason or reasons, would your general advice... Uh, be to not date that person uh, with room for exception. <laughs> Again, I don't want to give general advice, but what you're looking for is repentance and lifestyle changes that demonstrate that repentance. And look, you, we've said this before, this is your decision. And everybody you know might say, generally speaking, marrying somebody who is divorced for an unbiblical reason is always the wrong idea to do. But you have to, you're the one who walks in your shoes. You're the one who has to live your life. You're the one who knows your circumstances. And so you have to make that decision and, and let the chips fall. Um, I would want to hear lots and lots and lots and lots of information about his new life after repentance. Is he making excuses? Is he openly taking, um, taking responsibility? And ultimately, it does become a matter of conscience. No believer is by definition unforgivable, and you have to decide if you're willing to live under the stigma that will come with that. That's what Jesus promised. He said that the one who marries a divorced woman uh, is guilty of adultery. And I explained that, that, that it, it makes it look like they are based on the exaggerations that Jesus was using in that whole text of Matthew 5. And so that's a decision you have to make. And you have to decide if you're willing to trust someone who has violated the one flesh principle of marriage, either through adultery or abandonment. Both of those violate the one flesh, one flesh uh, principle. But don't make the decision based on others saying shame on you. Um, make it with wisdom, with your eyes wide open. Uh, the easiest thing to do is get married young and stay married till you're old. And that's the easiest thing to do. Um, if you're in that, in that situation, and, and look, if you're in that situation and you're 25 years old, the stakes get higher. If you're 60, it might be that you say, look, you know, we've both lived a life that has a lot of potholes in it, but we sort of need each other. And so there are all kinds of those circumstances to take into account. And ultimately, you have to do what you believe is right uh, because it is a gray area. If everyone else around you says it's not gray, you still have to do what you think is right because you're the only one that has to live with those consequences. Um, so for me, I'm just going to be, I would just be super careful uh, with that. I would want to know time. You know, how long ago did that happen? Oh, it was a whole month ago. You know, I think meet me again in five years and tell me what happens. Um, but it might have been a decade earlier. People are a whole different person. Are you the same person now that you were 10 years ago? No, you're a completely different person now. So, Okay, uh, going back to 1 Corinthians 7 again. Um, it appears 
that this is a ground rule laid out in 7, 10 through 11 concerning Christian couples. Don't get divorced. Um, if you do remain unmarried, then the ground rule in 7, 12 through 16 seems to be concerning unequally yoked couples. If both are agreed about it, stay together. If the unbeliever departs, let him or her depart. So the question is, if Paul says Christian couples who divorce should remain unmarried, why would the rules be any different for the unequally yoked couples, assuming that not under bondage uh, means permission to remain? So the not under bondage part is in verse 15. That in such cases, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to, to peace, not under bondage, not enslaved. Um, I taught that this is implicit um, permission to remarry. So the, the question is, okay, two believers should never remarry as long as there's a chance for reconciliation. Why would the, the rules, and I don't like that word in this, in this passage, why would the rules be different for the believer and the unbeliever who are separated? I, I think that's pretty simple. Um, it's the difference between holding a believer accountable to obey Christ and holding an unbeliever accountable to obey Christ. Unbelievers are not accountable to obey Christ. The very definition of an unbeliever is one who doesn't believe he's accountable to obey Christ. Um, the phrase rules for unequally yoked couples, I think it has a challenge to it. The, the unbeliever has no loyalty to Christ from which to obey a rule. There is no loyalty there. Uh, the rules, as the question says, are not a guide to living. They're the standard by which God will judge those people and send them to hell. Yes, they broke and violated their marriage. That is a sin. That'll be the standard by which they're judged. Practically speaking, asking a believer who's unbelieving spouse has abandoned the marriage to remain single out of obligation to a rule it doesn't have any redeeming value at all the apostle paul even says how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife you just don't know so uh, the difference is is that we hold believers accountable to obey christ we, we can't hold unbelievers accountable to um god will but that's not our that's not our purview so okay um uh, kind of probably a question that we have all thought, been thinking about, or have thought about um, throughout this series. Uh, what should I do if I suspect that real abuse may be happening in a marriage? So I would assume that in, in the marriage, in, in um, say, among people you know, particularly in the local church, uh, I was shocked at some of the statistics I read about how much abuse actually does happen in the local church. It just, it happens, marital abuse. Um, what do I do? I suspect that real abuse may be happening. A simple answer, first of all, is ask. Just ask. And encourage the spouse who may be being abused to know that you're a resource. And then at that point, Matthew 18 kicks in. But I want you to listen to this dynamic. This is difficult. Um, There is a true fear involved in confronting an abuser because the dynamic is one that creates an atmosphere of fear, an atmosphere of power and control. Um, So a spouse who's being abused under the legitimate definitions I gave a few weeks ago, um, they might need help. And we might say, well, Matthew 18 says that she has to confront him first. Matthew 18 is our four steps of of church restoration, church discipline. Um, I would contend that if she's told him to stop one time, she's already confronted him. Because step number two is to bring others with you. But I want you to remember this. Uh, abuse comes in many forms. And by the way, it's not limited to men. 
Um, women abuse their husbands as well with threats, manipulation, power grabs um, by taking or threatening to take money, threatening to take children. Um, abuse is any attempt to exert control and power over the spouse for the sake of gaining control and power and forcing them to do what you want them to do. I think you have to be mindful of what real abuse is versus someone who may just be unpleasant to live with, that a, a true reviler, an unrepentant abuser, ultimately is going to be treated as an unbeliever. And, and um, I've talked to Christian men who have been abusive and I see the brokenness in their hearts and I've talked to professing Christian men who the more they're confronted, the, more, the harder and the more res- resistant they get. And that difference is, is clear to see. So um, first responsibility is just ask. Don't be silent. Don't be silent. Okay, kind of a similar question. Uh, what is the responsibility of church leadership if real, unrepentant marital abuse is happening by a church member? Responsibility of church leadership. And if I'm counting right, I think we have two questions left after this, right? Just so, that's your joke? I took his joke. All right. Well, you can think of another one because this answer is going to be really, really long. No. What's the responsibility? First of all, you can't stay quiet. I just talked to a little focus group we put together to, for my doctoral project here, and, and we talked about uh, the dynamic in the church that sometimes there's a don't ask and don't tell just implicit policy in the church. So we're just not going to talk about it because a lot of us grew up in circles where y- you didn't know that your next door neighbor was, was getting beaten up on a regular basis. You didn't grow up in those circumstances. So first of all, you can't stay silent as leaders. If knowledge of this comes to light, action is required based on what? Based on loving your neighbor. It has to be. I think it's even better, though, if the body gets involved, uh, especially initially. And listen, church members who are not vitally involved in the body life of, of, of the church, um, they, they don't get that benefit. And so we, we need to get them, encircle them, get them involved. And we need that accountability. Um, but I will say this, too, back to the Matthew 18 idea. Matthew 18, the steps of church discipline and restoration. If you, if you only hear part of this, you're going to think I'm a heretic. It is not always the best course of action. Because in certain circumstances, it's way too slow. And you might say, well, those are the only options we have. Nope, we have other options. Paul gave instruction about those who were naming the name of Christ, but unrepentantly engaging in certain behaviors. He said in 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, that's the abuser, drunkard or swindler not to even eat with such a one how many steps in that process uno just one titus 3 10 and 11 as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned how many steps in that process two so based on wisdom sometimes we use first corinthians 5 one step sometimes titus 3 two steps sometimes matthew 18 four steps you see the difference Sometimes uh, situations warrant that. The longest church discipline situation I've personally been involved with has taken well over a year and the shortest has taken four days because sometimes speed is warranted. So now you can tell your joke. Uh, I can't. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I was going to say, well, we've reached the halfway point, but (laughs) that doesn't work. That's still funny. That's still funny. It just didn't sound the same. All right, anyway. Um... Thank you all for coming. Uh, this is uh
been tremendous. Uh, you kind of talked about this a little bit before, maybe just want to go through it again. Um, how do I deal? Uh, this is a very uh, hot issue emotionally. How do I deal with Christians who have a different view on divorce and remarriage than I do? Well, first of all, there are some non-negotiables. Adultery is never okay. Abandonment is never okay. And if these are unrepentant, that, show, that person is showing themselves to be an unbeliever in all likelihood. Adultery, abandonment, divorce, none of those are unforgivable sins, though. We don't get to pick and choose which sins are more forgivable than others. Um, that's God's purview. Repentance should guarantee forgiveness. Uh, I think the first thing is to be wary of looking down your nose at someone who has had a different life experience than you. Um, my experience has been that those who tend to be a little bit on the uh, more conservative side on divorce and remarriage tend to have wonderful marriages. Um, and they tend to have not walked in the shoes of somebody who has had two different spouses leave them for adultery um, and, and not walk through that, those minefields where you wake up one day and you're 40 years old and you've blown through two marriages and one was your fault and the other was their fault and you say, what, what happened? What did I do? So until we've walked down the, the same paths that others have, we want to be careful of that. Um, we have in our church people who have been abandoned, people who have been victimized by adultery, people who have been divorced. But is a self-righteous attitude toward that, is that any better than those things? I don't think it is. How you deal with those who differ with you, I think it really reflects your soteriology. It demonstrates, and this is going to be hard to hear, it demonstrates whether you view others as a little less worthy than yourself to receive salvation. That's ultimately what it boils down to. And we never condone and look the other way at verifiable sin, obviously. But neither do we define something as universally sinful when Scripture does not define it as such. Uh, God, I, you know, I, this is only my opinion. I think God has generally been pretty good at defining sin in Scripture. And I think he's pretty clear about what sin is. And so when something seems a little more gray, it's not that God you know, was having an off day and had writer's block. Um, it is gray. There are sinful divorces, sometimes by one spouse, sometimes by both spouses. There are divorces that then provide relief and mercy as well. And by the way, divorces can't sin. Um, people sin. Sometimes a divorce is sinful for one spouse and not for the other. There are remarriages that are sinful because of the intentional, unrepentant destruction that's left behind. And there are remarriages that are grace and mercy of God. If you're blessed to have been married to the same person for your whole life, if your marriage even has survived adultery or survived horrible years, that doesn't give you the right to look down on others that have had a harder situation, haven't been so blessed and so privileged. I think ultimately, if you have super strong convictions about certain gray areas, then that, those are the convictions that you must live your life by, not live everyone else's life by. Divorce and remarriage is a gray area. How do I know this? Because there is so much disagreement by men and women who agree on everything else. So that, we understand that. So what do you do if you have those strong convictions? Then you personally live by those convictions and respect that someone else may live by some different ones. And you do it to the glory of God. If you believe that all divorce is wrong, then you can never divorce. If you believe that all remarriage is wrong, you can never remarry. And so I want to finish this up with the same principle that we talked about last time. 
from Romans 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And the joke there is that the people eating vegetables are weak because they need protein, but that's a whole nother issue. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Let me stop right there. That is the idea of somebody says, I still want to obey Sabbath law. That's black and white. We don't have to obey Sabbath law. And yet Paul said, respect them when they do. Respect them when they do. I still remember being a little kid and my dad not letting me mow the lawn in front of a neighbor who believed that Sunday was the Sabbath so as to not offend her. And that's when it's black and white to not be offensive to one another. This is gray. He says, the one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So if you believe that all remarriage is wrong, then never remarry and do that to the glory of God. If you believe that remarriage is allowable from scripture and you feel like you don't have the gift of singleness and, and Mr. or Mrs. Wright comes along, then remarry to the glory of God and and demonstrate a marriage that is pure and holy and righteous. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I think we're done. I I have one more question. He was going to throw one at me. Okay. When can I call you Dr. Schwartz? (laughs) That is not up to me. Uh, Lord willing, May of this year, and uh, if certain things fall by the wayside than May of the following year. So, but after that, then you can't anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. David, you want to close us in prayer? Yes, yes, let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we are thankful for the, the great promises of your word, the promise that uh, you will not um, divorce us, that we have joy in our relationship with you, we have peace Um, and we have the ability to serve you. I pray um, through this study that you would be sharpening us and making us into ministers to help other people. I pray that you'd be making us um, into, um, into people who have strong marriages that help other people with their marriages. I pray these things in your name.